Just past 7 o'clock, and here we go on a Monday night. It's time for Ira on Sports, True Oldies Channel. I'm Mike Balsamo, and Ira, a, f- a familiar face across the table. It's nice to have you back in South Florida. It's awesome to be back here. I was in Los Angeles for a week. I saw a Dodger game, but it's good to be back here in Florida from coast to coast. And uh, we've got a great guest coming on tonight. His name is Merle Code, and we're going to join. he's going to join us at about 7.20, and I think everyone's going to really love this interview. Merle Code was in last 20 years in basketball as a player at Clemson, but he's best known for being running the grassroots operation for Nike and then for Adidas. He was caught up in the entire scandal in terms of what they were a few years ago, served time in jail, and uh, he's going to talk about, he has a book called Black Market, just talked about everything about the whole idea about how he, for breaking an NCAA rule, you somehow go to jail, and only some lower level people perhaps that chose the assistant coaches, not of the big names. So it's going to be a great interview. I can't wait to have him on. Yeah, and we'll do that right about uh, 720 here on Ira on Sports. Um, you can follow Ira all across social media. Don't forget, we got. I had a Joey Gallo video, I believe it was, that got 15,000. Uh, 16,000. I caught bad. him on the home run. I mean, that's the Yankee fans ex- saying, wait, we, <laughs> what, that was, we haven't seen Joey Gallo hit a home run in years. So, uh, so yeah, you, don't forget, you can follow Ira all across social media at Ira on Sports. Top right into the NFL, Ira. Uh, preseason games are getting underway. And. What you always risk is losing a guy potentially for the season. It happens every single year. And you could kind of feel the air come out of New York Jets fans' sails completely as it looked like Zach Wilson might miss the season with a torn ACL or something like that, non-contact injury. What's the latest on this? Because I think now they're saying we will see Zach Wilson. Uh, well, he hurt his meniscus. He's getting menis- meniscus repair. And while I was flying from L.A. to New York, I just heard that he's getting his surgery in L.A. Oh, so interesting. Com- it's interesting that he chose a doctor in Los Angeles to do this. Um, they say two to four weeks. Uh, they'll probably be very cautious. I assume it'll probably be four to eight weeks. Probably going to miss the start of the season for a Jets team that had so much enthusiasm saying, look, we have this great team around us. And you mentioned maybe Jimmy Garoppolo would be someone yeah. who would come to step in because you'd want to have a, a, a veteran backup. Well, they have Flacco already as their backup. So the question is, will they use Flacco or how they'll handle this? Yeah, I think they're going to have to wait till after the surgery and kind of see what they have. I don't know if they're going to want to give up any draft capital or anything to bring in Jimmy G, who's going to have to learn a whole new system. Maybe they would just roll with Flacco for a week or three, uh, whatever it turns out to be. Or Mike White, they could turn over to him. Remember, he was pretty good in spot starts um, last year. Any other takeaways from this Jets and Philly game? Um, not really, except that uh, Jalen Hurts from Philadelphia, their quarterback, ran a play. I think he played, did one series. He got knocked. It was a late hit out of bounds, and they pulled him out of that game as fast as you possibly yeah. could imagine. I mean, it was sort of, he got, got hit, and then he was out of the game because they were not going to risk him getting hurt. Yeah, a lot of people thought it was kind of dirty play on Quinn and Williams' part, too, that he was going after him, but neither here nor there. Cleveland and Jacksonville, we got to see Deshaun Watson for the first time in, I think, 19 months, and didn't look very good. <laughs> well, his name's been in the news for so much. Everyone keeps talking about him. They gave him the largest contract in the history of the NFL. When he comes out, it was one for five for seven yards, uh, considering the rust he had. I was surprised they didn't play him a little even longer. I thought they would kept him in because, but now, you know, maybe they think he will be suspended for most of the year, but I guess a lot from the Browns fans, I mean, they, I don't know what they were thinking. Uh, I, look, he was 4-12 and 12 as last year that he played. I, I said that he's going to have trouble playing Cleveland. I've not been high on this entire signing, and with all, you know, but you, it was interesting that in uh, Jacksonville, they were booing him the entire time. Yeah. And he's going to feel, that he's going to have that booing constantly. Uh, Mike Vick was, when he came back, there was boos, but it wasn't, this was, I was listening to the game on the radio, and I could hear the booing almost the entire time he was on the field. I, I mean, both terrible, but Michael Vick did serve jail time, you know, whereas Deshaun Watson could pretty much walk away from, from this scot-free. So you would think that there should be a little more public hatred towards Deshaun Watson than there was uh, Michael Vick. San, San Francisco played Green Bay. Um, we knew we weren't going to see much of Ayahuasca Aaron Rodgers, but we did see uh, the two young two young quarterbacks going after it. Well, people are excited for Trey Lance for San Francisco. He looked, you know, there was going to make mistakes, but he looked very athletic, completed some passes. I think for, if you're a San Francisco fan, you're happy with how he played. Got to see Jordan Love a little bit for Green Bay, throw three interceptions, did not look good, and now you're seeing why they sort of told Aaron Rodgers, just please come and stay here. Jordan Love is not the answer. But, uh, no, Trey Lance, I think this is why this gives – I saw where Garoppolo is at, at the 49ers camp, and we had discussed this a little bit. He he is guaranteed, if he is on the roster, another – I think it's 20 million dollars. I think they are, they're already booked in their salary cap, so he, he's gonna, he's not practicing with the team. He's sort of on this another field, but they want to keep him in case 
case that they have in your lands, but also as athlete, if someone gets hurt, he's going to be a, right now. Nobody wants to trade for him. But if you're losing a star quarterback, then you, he'd be a valuable person to bring in. And that's what I think is going to happen around week seven, eight, nine, ten. Someone will inevitably get hurt. Jimmy G is going to get the phone call, or San Francisco is going to get the phone call and get a second and you know fifth round pick to, to bring him over. Another thing is a lot of he Kyle Shanahan. He's used to that offense. A lot of these coordinators are the Kyle Shanahan type offense, and mm-hmm. you know you wonder if like a Matt, Matt Stafford got hurt for would he? I mean, would the Rams actually trade with the 49ers? Probably not, but for us trade with there. But you know what? If you're going to get a pick, maybe they would make that trade. So I think there is there's so many coaches have that are running that style. Garoppolo could step in pretty quickly and adapt. Rams don't have any draft picks for the next three decades, but they figure <laughs> something out. I think that people, um, you know, in the Tennessee Titans camp, got to be pretty excited about Malik Willis. I mean, you know, across the media, they're kind of already dubbing him the successor to Ryan Tannehill. I don't know if I saw that much in one game, but he didn't look terrible. Well, the coach Vrabel was not happy with the play he ran. He thought he broke it off, but he's certainly athletic, and, and it was nice. It's what's fun. That's the one fun thing to watch preseason football is you get to see these quarterbacks that you probably aren't going to see the rest of the year, and you see them play. And Willis did have a – you can see what the opportunities for him. And you also see with Willis – now, as much as Vrabel said, I don't like that he ran the ball, that there are plays that he's going to be in. If you have Henry, Derek Henry and uh, Willis – in in the backfield, that's gonna that's gonna help Henry in terms of running. So I could see how he's gonna be used every now and then. Tannehill's not gonna like that. He's gonna you know, that like almost like when Flacco and Lamar Jackson were being used. Yeah. Um, talk about your Steelers played uh, played the Seattle Seahawks. I think Steelers fans are a little too excited by that. All the quarterbacks look great. Pickett was thirteen for fifteen. Mason Rudolph nine for fifteen. Trubisky's four for seven. All through touchdowns. I think the pick the player that everyone's talking about, and I'm gonna give myself credit on this when they picked George Pickens. Uh, George Pickens, a rookie wide receiver, might be the rookie of the year coming forward because he looked fantastic in the game and he supposedly looked fantastic in camp. Remember, he was a star at Georgia, got hurt, came back. I give him a lot of credit for coming back. Didn't really look great last year because he was recovering from his knee injury, but wanted to be part of that superstar team. Had bad quarterback sets and Bennett as a quarterback, whatever. And now the Steelers have him and he's healthy, looking amazing. I mean, <laughs> highlight reels. He could supplant DeAndre Johnson as a star wide receiver on the team. It, it- I don't remember who it was, but someone in the national media actually said that, that look for Pickens to be the number one receiver over Claypool and Deontay Johnson once the season's done. It's not like you guys don't have a really good track record of drafting wide receivers. I'm not going to be shocked if he does immediately, you know, catapult himself into that upper echelon think, of wide receivers. And I think Kenny Pickett, I, I guess the question is, can Ken, Kenny Pickett looked, he looked good enough that you're now starting to think, well, maybe he would have a shot. I, I still think there's, look, the quarterbacks, but also Seattle's terrible. I, I just, I can't get excited in this game. I mean, I think Steelers fans are like, oh, now our team is really good. No, you're really not. You <laughs> they gave up 30, 25 points to Seattle. I think the defense has serious problems. I've been saying that. I mean, they're going to play Cincinnati week one. So you can put 50 points on them. I, I, I still, the Steelers fans get, I think are getting, you know, a little too excited about this win over Seattle in a preseason game. We've got about 10 minutes till we get to uh, Merle Code here on Ira on Sports. True Oldies Channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. Kind of shocked the world Friday night. Wasn't expecting to, you know, I sat down on my couch ready to watch uh, Yankees play the Red Sox and breaking news flashed across the screen and Fernando Tatis Jr. going to miss 80 games now due to a PED violation. He's not um, not denying it. He's not trying to appeal it. He's just going to take the, the games. But this really shakes up the Major League Baseball landscape. Well, the Padres had just brought in Juan Soto. They brought in Hader, the, the, the reliever. They Josh Bell. They were really gunning for it. Tatis was in a rehab assignment. He was going to join. I mean, this is like the, for the Padres. Like, let's get to the playoffs. Let's get a wild card. We're going to make a great run. Tatis has been out. The reason he was out this whole year is he was in a motorcycle accident. So he at the beginning of the year. So he signs a 14-year, $340 million contract, and now he's not going to play for literally almost two years. And he's been hurt, too. In 2019, he'll play 84 games. Last year, he played 130 games, of course, had 45 home runs, uh, 92 RBIs. But the, the Padres, what a what a blow. I mean, this is a, the young star, to, and blow to baseball, too. I mean, A-Rod was listening to the A-Rod uh, on the ESPN, too. He said it's not just a blow to the Padres, a blow to baseball. Not to lose a superstar and to have his pairing with Soto, you, everyone was like, wow, well, it's going to be so exciting to see Machado, Soto, and Tatis back to back to back, and now you're not going to see it for the middle of next year. And think about how marketable he was. I mean, you're seeing him everywhere. He's on every commercial break. You see Fernando Tatis Jr. in it. So I got to imagine all that's going to go away. Um, one thing I didn't know, and it, there's a serious maturity issue here, and I didn't know that he showed up to camp and didn't tell them he was in a motorcycle accident. He just showed up with a broken wrist, and they were like, were you going to let us know about this? <laughs> um, but how often, Ira, I can't recall ever seeing teammates come out against him. I, I expect the GM, uh, AJ Preller, he came out and said, this kid has to grow up. This is a serious 
situation. But Joe Musgrove, that just got signed to a five-year, $100 million contract, he came out on social media and said, like, this is a terrible decision. He needs to grow up and show more maturity. Can't recall ever seeing teammates do something like that. I, I, I get the question in today's world, like, it can't be an accident anymore. You know that it, you're taking supplements. You have a whole team. It's not like you're on your own. The Padres have an entire nutritionist staff. I went on their website. They must have five nutritionists on the team. Like, everything they eat. Like, if I'm a player and I'm worth, a, have a contract, 340, I'm not going to McDonald's. I mean, I'm checking everything. Like, I, I'm very careful what I would be eating, considering it could jeopardize it. But he took this supplement. He goes, oh, it was risky. I mean, come up with excuse. But, he, of course, he's not challenging it. He's probably using it. But, you know, this is in baseball. This is a big deal. This isn't like in football where they get, like, a four games sometimes. This is big. And then also look at A-Rod. He's still living this down. And, you know, he failed tested Manny Ramirez. These people aren't getting in Hall of Fames. Roger Clemens, all these players, because of this, I, Tatis, this could end his Hall of Fame. Ch- you know, this is, you're not in the Hall before of Fame Before it now. started. Before it started, right? <laughs> um... Before the Dodgers lost uh, last night to the Kansas City Royals, which was pretty surprising. Before that, I read they'd lost five games in six weeks. That is incredible. They were 33 for their last 38. And I guess, um, you know, with the loss yesterday, that'll be 39. But I don't know. A lot of people love the Mets, but how can you take any credit away from the Dodgers? They really have. They, they started the game. I went to a game on Wednesday night in Dodger Stadium. It's, people think that baseball's dead. You go to a Dodger Stadium on Wednesday night, they're playing Minnesota, and there's 43,000 fans going crazy. Impossible to get in, impossible to get out. But Ryan Pepe would start their rookie pitcher. He didn't look good, but boy, their team, I mean, they just. They're loaded. I mean, that's I've, I've said that from they have, they have Betts, Trey Turner, uh, Freddie Freeman, Will Smith is their catcher. Muncie, who's played terrible all year, then started to hit a home run, starting to play well. Then he was replaced by Alberto, this rookie, this rookie that, that player that played great. Uh, Justin Turner, Gavin Lux, Chris Taylor, they can go one through nine. Everyone get a home run. Everyone gets big hits. They are they're down four two, but they knew they could come back and win. They are good. They've been good. I'm saying that, and I think they're a team that has they have the best by far best record in baseball, and they haven't played well this year. <laughs> now they're starting to play well, and uh, I mean they're 16 games ahead of the Padres. But no, I, I you got to like it, it, even with all the pitching problems they have. I mean that without Kershaw, who's now hurt, and without Walker Bueller, they're still winning, and they're going to continue winning. I mean, it's going to be the Dodgers versus the Mets in the NL. So Ira, you you know you can take a little credit here. You did say that the Yankees Mets series that we kicked off the second half with was going to have some implications and it didn't the Mets looked good and the Yankees did not and it's kind of been a tale of two teams from from that point on I mean it's a I come in and it goes Aaron Baboon should be fired people are calling up the Yankees since that series before they started were struggling but since that series it's been a disaster and the Mets have played great uh that everything's coming together for the Mets and people are, are and now they got this big series against the Braves again uh, where they can actually cement the division this is this this week against the Braves will be if they if they can you know win this series they're going to win the division easily and it if they lose a couple games, it's probably not the end of the world for them. But definitely, the Yankees are two and eight in their last ten games, uh, and they are just not. I mean, and also the fact that they traded Jordan Montgomery, a left-hander who was cried when he heard. Hasn't that, given up a run since he got traded. Since he got traded, <laughs> and you're like you're trading a left-handed pitcher. It just makes no sense. And and A Rod, I was that I listened to that that K Rod cast as they call A Rod just. Killed Cashman on that, saying, "I mean, I, but he's not the only one. I'm not giving A Rod credit. Everyone's killing." And they're like, "Why would you give this? Great, there's no pitching in baseball, and you have giving up a good left hander for a Bader, who's not going to play us, a, a backup outfielder who's not going to play until September. So it's a, a questionable move." Yeah, and the other questionable move is they called up Tim LoCastro from their AAA team, who's basically Bader. Same batting average, same great defense. This guy was in, in your farm system. Why would LoCastro not just get these at bats and you keep the lefty pitcher? And, also you have a, and now the judge is having this great year. You haven't signed judge. It's now looking there is a chance they could lose him. I mean, it's like now they're saying what's happening. You, you should have put all your eggs, you know, all the chips on the table to win this year if you're going to lose judge. And considering how they were on such a great hot start. But I always thought, look, I knew Stanton was going to get hurt. You know, some of these other players are going to hurt. Now, DJ LeMay, who might get hurt. I mean, they were just so lucky the first three months of the year with no injuries, everything going right. And that's why I give the Dodgers credit. The Dodgers had everything go wrong for them. The beginning of the year, the record was still good. Now everything's going right, and they're thirty-three and five. So one thing to note, and I don't know if you saw the stat last night in that game, but during before the All Star break, they were scoring five point one runs a game. Right now, after they're scoring five point seven runs a game, their ERA just went from top of the league to bottom of the league. Right. It's it's been all pitching, and you shipped Jordan Montgomery out of town. I I don't know. Speaking of pitching, the Miami Marlins always seem to have it. They 
de- draft pitchers well. They develop pitchers well. One thing they don't do, especially recently, is hit the ball, Ira. It's been pretty bad in Miami. And it's like, it's since 40-some years that a team has gone this many games without scoring three runs. I mean, they're just, their hitting is a disaster. And it's just, I I, didn't, I think the excitement from Miami were down here in West Palm Beach, I thought it was overrated anyway. I, I didn't think their team was that great, and I just thought hitters haven't been hitting. But this is, when I saw that stat on TV today, they have, they're the worst hitting since 1979. That's terrible. I mean, that was like the We Are Family yeah. Pirates. <laughs> Every night it's a two-one loss, one-nothing loss. It's like the pitchers are doing their job. You got to hit the ball. Got just about three or four minutes here till we have to get to Merle Code. Will Zalatoris gets off the snide. He'd been playing as good as pretty much anybody can without actually winning a golf tournament, especially in the in the majors where he's been phenomenal. He's going to get a win over Sepp Straka, your Honda Classic champ, but. Kevin Smith might have overshadowed this weekend, Ira. It was kind of weird, weird uh, way, the way this planned out on Saturday and Sunday. A couple of things about Zalateris and Straka. Well, first of all, Zalateris had 65 starts on the tour. He's four runner-ups, but some of his runner-ups were second in the Masters, second in this bat in the U.S. Open. So he's had his opportunities. And I didn't like when the announcers NBC kept saying, what does Will Zalateris have to do to win? Well, how about hit better shots? Like, yeah. I mean, he was, <laughs> Straka was giving him this tournament, and Will wasn't winning it. I mean, we're going to go through the playoff holes, but Straka had missed six cuts for the year. How about Straka? You're talking about hit or miss. 14 missed cuts on the year, but he won the Honda, ninth in the players, second in this. I mean, he's either going to be in the top 10 or miss a cut, which is just amazing. <laughs> but that final holes, they went to three playoff holes, and the 18th hole is it's almost like Pebble Beach because there's water all on the left side and trees on the right side, and Zalatoris kept hitting in the trees, and Straka kept hitting in the left, all close to the water, and the first playoff hole, Straka putting for a birdie and missed, had a chance to win that. They went to a second hole, and the second one, and Zalatoris' tee shot was again in the woods. Straka had to take a, a drop really it was to get, get closer and they still they both messed that hole and both bogeyed the hole for the second playoff hole for the third playoff hole they go to the par 3 and on 11th it was like an iron, iron island green around water Zalatoris hits the ball first and it's like on the um, rocks it was like a, a wall that was there like a retaining he wall he could have still played all Straka had to do was hit it on the green it doesn't have to be close he could have three putted and still and he just he puts it in the water I mean yeah. I cannot believe then what Zalatoris is, he takes a drop, goes back. You know, he wins. Straka double bogeys the hole. Zalatoris bogeys the hole and wins the tournament. They're like, oh, wow. What? And they kept saying, what does he have to do to win? I'm like, how about get a, hit some good get shots? Yeah. Yes, I just couldn't stand. They kept saying, well, like, oh, so hard luck. It's not like he's playing Tiger Woods and Tiger Woods is hitting Eagles. It's like, just bar your hole. You're going to win. That's what you have to do. But let's get back to the Cameron Smith. So we know the rumors all that Cameron Smith is going to sign $100 million to go to live. That's everyone's been talking about. Cameron Smith going to live. He's the second, uh, ranked second in the world. He's going to be the first or second in the FedEx Cup points. I uh, just won the the British Open, and uh, but the problem, the thing was, is that on. I saw that he was two strokes off the lead. And on Saturday, you wake up on Sunday, and they took two strokes off because he hit a ball. The, he put a drop. It went and touched the drop line, the red line, which isn't even like a, a line. It's sort of like someone just hand writes it on the thing. And it was by like a millimeter. Someone on the PJ Tours, they probably were analyzing every single shot he hit. Oh, yeah. Like, did it a violation? Did he not a violation? Like, oh, by the way, it's a two-stroke you know, well, a penalty. So he starts the next day on Sunday, four strokes behind. That They didn't want him to win. They didn't want him to look so bad. I, I just That's like WWE. Wrestling. I mean, this is another. <laughs> this is crazy that they would go to this. It, the PJ may on that ruling makes itself look pathetic. It really is. It, it was to go through. And also, I thought we were not looking at the videos and calling in the next day anyway. All the people that bet on that or put place. How about if you placed a bet for Cameron Smith the next day? He was the betting favorite going to Sunday. Yeah. I placed my bet, and oh, you take two strokes off. That's not fair. I, the PJ Tour looks pathetic in this. No, they really do. It's a a bad look all around, and they they haven't handled any of this live stuff. Well, where are we here uh, going into the second leg of the FedEx? Well, now we're, we have BMW in Delaware, the top 70 advance. Um, and now Cameron Smith pulled out. Now, he'll still make the Tour Championship so he could play in Atlanta in the top 30. But he'll still have enough points to be in that, which so he still has a chance to win it. But he, he's pulled out of the BMW, he said, with a, with a bad hit. Probably a bad hit because... I don't know because he's so mad. <laughs> I just I can't. When I heard it, I'm like, why are they doing it? They just they are making themselves. So, like, 
I just don't understand the PGA Tour, how they're handling live. They've handled it poorly. Now, to penalize their own golfer like that, who's playing in a tournament, just to throw a penalty out of nowhere. Crazy. Uh, let's wrap it up with a little uh, auto racing before we get to Merle Code. Kevin Harvick, who hadn't won and seemed like forever, um, but who won, actually won back-to-back. He won at Richmond. So now going into the final two races, uh, there's been 15 winners. Ryan Blaney and Martin Tuix are right on the cut line in terms of points. So one of them would get in, but unless another person wins this final, if someone wins this final race, then they're both out of it. So it comes down with the two races, then the 10-race uh, playoff. Formula One is still there on their summer hiatus. And I'll tell you what, if you follow Instagram and everything, Formula One drivers, they are the best. They are these guys are they are not sitting home like they are like partying. Uh, Lewis Hamilton is out like with giraffes and hippopotamuses <laughs> and they're jumping out of airplanes. I mean they're they're not they're they really are experts at the social media, especially <laughs> the three weeks off. Let's go to Merle Code. It's Iron Sports. Uh, we're honored to have Merle Code on to on Iron Sports. Merle has a book out called Black Market. I'm holding it up right here. I don't even have the cover because I've been reading it so much, but it really is could be one of the most seminal books on college basketball Merle's experiences through the last two decades of I mean, as a player uh, he provides the insight that I don't think's ever been brought before I was thinking of Jose Canseco when he wrote Juiced and people like laughed at the book a little bit and now it's considered the number one book about the whole steroid air so I hope that in like 10-15 years they will be referring to Black Market as one of these great books that actually showed everything that was happening in college basketball Merle thanks so much for coming on Iron Sports Thank you for having me. So, Merle, and I also encourage people to buy this book. This is not just about the basketball scandals and those things. Merle, when working at, works at Nike and Adidas, and if you read the book, it's like a who's who of meeting LeBron and Giannis and working with these players and Kevin Durant, everything. It's just amazing. And from a reading, I just love the book. I encourage everyone to buy it. But, uh, Merle, so your background is you're from Clemson, you're from South Carolina, Greenville, South Carolina, and uh, your grandfather played in the Black Leagues. He was uh, a Michigan graduate, a principal. Your dad was a star football player. Uh, just had a great background there in Greenville. Yeah, I'm, I'm blessed and fortunate to have had um, parents and grandparents on my mother and father's side who were athletes and who uh, stressed education. And, and more importantly, stressed being um, a good person and being humanistic and understanding people's needs and trying to be a person of the community and being willing to help, even if it means upsetting some folks sometimes, you do what's right by people. And you grew up, you love playing basketball, of course, and, and you talked about just playing the whole South Carolina. I mean, we think about South Carolina as a hotbed of basketball, but you mentioned Zion, John Morant, some, some, and Chris Middleton, and Kevin Garnett's also from South Carolina. Yeah, and, and it's, but it's interesting because guys like Ray Allen aren't, aren't, you know, are also South Carolina natives. And so Jermaine O'Neal is a South Carolina native. I mean, I can go on and on and on with guys who come out of this state who were really, really good players. Um, but during the era when I was coming out of school, we weren't known as a hotbed for basketball, right? It was more of a, a football state and still is considered predominantly a football state. And so the opportunities uh, to be seen by higher level schools were minimized at that time for, for the majority of the kids who were, who were talented enough to go on and play at higher level schools. Uh, and, and so some of us had to take the long route. I ended up having to go to prep school. I went to Fort Union Military Academy. Um, and, and so along with, uh, and, and then behind me, Shimon Williams ended up going to Fort Union Military Academy as well. And so there are guys who took that route um, to, to further their careers and be, be more visible on the national stage to prove that we could play. Because again, at, those, at that time, South Carolina wasn't known as a basketball uh, destination for and then you talk about your choice to go to Clemson, and you as a, as a player, you experience some things. Now, that gives you the insight into when you're helping other players and working with other players. You know, you were promised you were going to be the starting guard at Clemson, and then they bring another guy in, and they have a change of coaches. You had injury. You really cover the whole gamut of everything happening to you at Clemson. Yeah, I think, you know, and that's part of the story. And I think that what, what people who aren't very uh, well-versed in the space, you know, people have a lot of opinions, and that's fine. Um, but when you have experience and an opinion, it brings on a different level of understanding. Um, and so I, I think that um, the book is, is an attempt to show the trials and tribulations that not just me, but all a lot of athletes face. I mean, you've got guys now who, who if they lose a big football game, they're facing death threats. <laughs> and so I think the, the realities that, that exist in terms of the pressures of winning and losing 
and the re- and the realities of what kind of business this is, um, the facade of amateurism and the facade of the NCAA and the facade of this being about education um, needs to be exposed and discussed at a greater length. And there needs to be some, some legislation at the federal level um, to, to stop this and allow these, if we're truly a capitalistic society, then allow these kids to earn monies without a cap. You don't cap these schools, you don't cap these coaches, you don't you don't cap marketing marketing and licensing agreements. You don't cap any of that stuff. But now all of a sudden you want to cap a kid because he's got some earning potential, and typically that affects those black kids in, in, in football and basketball. Right. I mean, you, you mentioned you know in terms of if he was a an engineer or a, or someone like that with a skill level, no one's saying that. Or even a musician. You know, if they played right. an instrument, no one's saying you you see all these star musicians when they're 15, 16 years old. No one's saying you know anything about them. No, and again, it's back to the point of it really just focuses on typically black kids. And again, it's not to, to say that white kids and, and, and Hispanic kids aren't affected because they are, but it's predominantly a black uh, conversation when you talk about football and basketball at the higher uh, higher levels of black in terms of where the, the, the most money is generated. And so, yeah, if a kid is, is, is an engineering major, if he's a, if he's uh, got an internship, they don't cap his ability to, to earn for that internship. If he wants to transfer schools, he doesn't have to sit out a year. Why is that? Why are the rules different for these black kids who are earning these schools money um, and, and million in the tune of billions of dollars uh, when, when others aren't held to the same standard? Right. You know, the, I loved how you, I've read so many stories on this. I think how you talked about, and for people in our show, we have a lot of people who listen to my show that don't, you know, follow college basketball so much. They might follow the NBA, but you gave a good history on like, why are shoes so important? I loved reading that about when Naismith started the game, he had basketball shoes in three years, and you talked about Chuck Taylor. Uh, just a little background about the whole, where did this whole shoe thing and the shoe wars from the different companies begin with and, and, and over the years, what's happened? Yeah, I mean, it, it really kind of hit a hit a boom, uh, kind of that late '80s, early '90s kind of market um, when you started having. And Son, Sonny Vaccaro was probably the first guy of record to start signing coaches to deals for shoe companies. Um, and so, basically, now the the school is beholden to this shoe company, um, and so are the kids on these teams without any say so themselves. They just have to do it because the coach is making money. Um, so if a, you know, if, 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 a, if a shoe company has a deal with the coach, then all of those 15 players, managers, everybody else is now beholden to that shoe company because the coach has a deal. And again, it gets back into me having a conversation about indentured servitude. These kids have no say in terms of what, they, what, what products they're allowed to sponsor or wear. They're free advertising for somebody because somebody else made the decision for them. And that's the part of this business that, again, that's one of the points of the business that I discuss in the book that needs to be challenged and, 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 and changed. And so you see the, the migration from a basketball program being with one shoe company and a football team at the same school being with a different company to now these all school deals where you have two and three hundred million dollar deals. There's a reason for that. The reasoning is it's free advertising. It's more money. It's more marketing dollars. It's more advertising dollars. It's more access to those players when they turn professional so they can become global icons, uh, hopefully. Um, but at the end of the day, it's all about everybody making money except for those kids who are wearing the product. Yeah, and you mentioned like if Adidas has a shoe deal with Louisville, you know, they want the best players to go to Louisville. They don't want them to go to a school that is all with Nike. So that the point is that, what, of course, they want the better players. They're giving Louisville hundreds of millions of dollars. They want Louisville to win. More people see their shoes. It's just natural yes. to think that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's the relationship that exists. That unfortunately, we you know, because this, is, this turned into a criminal matter, uh, we weren't able to put that in front of a jury. Uh, um, and, and so you get, hand, you get handcuffed because now you realize corporate powers that be and the judicial system work hand in hand and they don't they don't really want their their dirty secrets exposed and so we'll be the scapegoats because we'll be we'll be the villains when when they're the ones exploiting the kids 
your first job at Nike, when you left uh, playing basketball, you played in Europe for a couple years and played in the, C in the CBA, but your first basketball job was not so much with high school players, it was with college. You were head of the Nike Pro Division, so you got to work with LeBron and other players. You had to evaluate Carmelo Anthony. You came out a great year with Chris Bosh, Anthony, all these star players, and you worked in Chicago. That must have been great to work with all these pro athletes and pro NBA players and as your first job in the, in this, in the shoe business, per se. Yeah, well, I wasn't head. I mean, I was, a, I was a rep when I first started. And my job really was in the services space. So my job was really just to make sure that the guys that we were recruiting had product um, and to, to build a, a relationship with them. So when they turned pro, because at that time, again, LeBron was in high school. Carmelo was um, uh, in high school heading, in, heading into his first year at Syracuse. Um, there were tons of other guys, but I really mainly worked with with uh, guys who were already under contract um, that were on NBA teams in the Midwestern region of the country get to make sure that they had everything they needed to practice and play in and that their families had all of the, the product. And then again, on the recruiting space to, to, to dive into those relationships. So yeah, it was an exciting time learning the business um, and especially coming off being a player and understanding kind of the mentality and the mindset of those guys um, helped me uh, navigate space a little bit. But not everybody, not every NBA player per se has a deal where they're making millions. You know, not everyone's LeBron getting tens of millions of dollars to, to wear their shoes. Some you say you just provide products for, some you provide a little bit of money for, but it's all different in terms of how good the player is, really. Yeah, I mean, there's certainly, there certainly levels um, to, uh, there's a hierarchy, so to speak, in terms of the guys who will who will ascend to global iconic status um, versus a guy who's just kind of a journeyman making a roster and glad to be, you know, making making good money, but on an NBA team who's not going to really move the needle uh, from a marketing and a sales perspective. Your story about LeBron, about him, how he decided to go with Nike and not Adidas and, and Reebok at the time was just, I mean, I reread that a bunch of times. What a story. Uh, and you were involved in the middle of the whole thing, seeing what was going down. Yeah, I was around it. Um, again, I, I wasn't the point person um, dealing with LeBron. I was just around it. It was a, it was an educational, uh, observationist kind of perspective. Um, you know, that was one of my first, um, I guess, entry points into into the space. And so, just kind of sitting, listening, watching, trying to soak it all in, not understanding. And then again, as 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 I kind of progress into a. 15, 16, 17 year career in the, in the business, you, you, you gain perspective and start reflecting and understanding what, why, and how. And then another LeBron's current teammate, you were one of the first people to, to discover Anthony Davis when you were in, in the Chicago region. And, and he, he grew, I guess, what, seven inches in, in a summer. And he was yes. a player no one heard of. And you saw him. Yeah, yep, seven to nine inches in, that one, in the one summer. And he was a, he was a very good player as a, as a guard. He was a probably a low low major to, to mid-major division one point guard um and then he hits the growth spurt and all of a sudden he's he's the number one player in the country and just you know again man, freakish things happen and certainly you want to uh you want to be able to, to to help that kid and his family uh track through the waters that the, uh, of, of the business and that's what we try to do and hopefully he, he he and his family know we've done what we were supposed to do in helping him get to get to uh the status that he's he's, he's reached and then your next job, and you said you took it reluctantly, was to work with the grassroots, which the, directly with the high school, high school players. And you said you were offered jobs, like with the Spurs offered you a job to be GM. A lot of your people that you grew up in with Nike with are now GMs in the league or had been GMs in the league. But you went into grass, to grassroots basketball, and that was just working with all the high school kids. And, and, and that's where the whole issue of going, you know, working with the college coaches, that was happening. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a part of the business. I mean, that's... That's what the grassroots job is. It's everything below the below the pro line, right? So you you are now thrown into the mix of dealing with thousands of people, right? In terms of uh, entire coaching staffs, um, athletic departments, you know, um, AAU programs. They're they're all of their age groups, all of their coaches, all of these kids' families, all of their high school coaches. So it just becomes this kind of whirlwind of people that you're now kind of thrown in the middle of and you're trying to navigate who's making decisions where's the kid going to school who's going to be his agent who's going to be his financial advisor what kind of shot do you have at signing him if he goes to a competitor school you know you have to kind of assess all those things um in the process so yeah i took the job reluctantly it wasn't something that i wanted to do um but again me me 
thinking I was being loyal to the people who, who uh, brought me in was why I ultimately decided to take the job. We hear the term AAU all the time. If you're if you have a son or daughter that's in basketball, you probably lived the whole life of AAU. But for people outside the world, it's not like they understand what the whole AAU is. I mean, they're like, wait, don't they just go to high school? Don't they? Don't their high school coaches the ones have to make decisions? And you really set through in this book about how the high school coaches are totally out of the mix right now. It really is these AAU programs. And just describe a little like what goes on with the AAU and why they have so much power. So for clarification, um, AAU is really not what it is, right? AAU is this amateur athletic union, which is a business entity unto itself. The the the, the that's that's the generic term that people use for summer summer travel basketball. Um, and so I, I I use it, but I'm trying to explain that it's a difference between just AAU and shoe company sponsored teams, which are called travel teams. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I just want to make that make that clarification. But yeah, there's 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 big business in the in the travel team space, and really what it is is it's the spring and summer months after the high school seasons have have completed. They take on a whole new season with a whole new team that is that is gener- generally based in the states or or adjacent state that they live in, um, and these kids travel all over the the country um, from sometimes late March through late July, early August on the dime of the shoe companies. And it's a competing um, business facts, a sector uh, for the three major shoe companies. And so everybody's trying to acquire the, the, the best talent that they possibly can. Um, and so then it gets into the business of how do you acquire these kids? Because now the parents are aware of of the jockeying for position, so their their requests now increase, <laughs> um, and so now you got to figure out is the kid worth whatever the ask is from a parental or an AAU or even a high school coach because he may be influential on that kid's life. Um, it could be a sister, it could be a cousin, it could be a step parent, and that's part of what makes the business difficult is you're trying to navigate who's actually um, pushing the buttons and who the kid is actually leaning on within his influential circle. So you, this, the shoe companies are working with the kids, trying to get them to go to their camps, and then you still have the colleges that are saying, now you the, in the mix with the colleges because the shoe company, and also you mentioned in the book, like, I could talk to these kids all the time. These colleges, coaches have limits when they can talk to the kids. So you have a better relationship with these kids. I mean, when they're getting to the college, the, the, the coaches don't know who these kids are. You're the ones who've been working with them four or five years, maybe. Right, and that's, that's what made the entirety of the case um, really... Uh, ridiculous because they were trying to make it sound like we were defrauding the schools when the schools were the ones leaning on us to assist them in the recruiting process they don't know the kids they have to utilize whatever avenues they can to gain an advantage in the recruiting space and that advantage again is through travel teams through the high school coach through the shoe shoe uh, uh, representatives uh, and so that's that's what that's how the business actually works uh, and so, again, that's what makes it really frustrating to, to have gone through uh, the process of going to, to the legal route when you're not allowed to, to, to really expose how this, how this really works because you're, you're handcuffed by what they will allow you to, to present. And then you mentioned in the book, it, it, even the coaches like you were at Nike, when Billy Donovan's at Florida, he's complaining that you're pushing players to go to to uh, Kentucky instead of a Nike, not a Nike stool. It's like, why does Kentucky and, and Oregon get all the Nike players? We we want something in Florida, too. And you're getting yelled at by coaches. So you're getting yelled yeah. at by everybody, it seems like. I mean, it's, it's, the, it's, it's being in the space almost like the Dr. Phil or basketball, right? <laughs> so you're... You're again. You're dealing with everybody's issues, and so you're you're dealing with. And again, to to, to to Billy's credit, he was right. There was an internal relationship, and there were there were um, steps made to to ensure that that some of the kids who were higher on the totem pole, who Kentucky wanted, Kentucky got. Uh, and so that's why I took his message and related back to those that I work for. And if you read the book, you'll get you'll see where the response came back to me. Um, <laughs> because again, you're talking about goo gobs of money being spent and invested into these programs, and so there, there's a need for success. 
And then you mentioned you like you ran the Jordan brand game and how just to get in that game, there was all this pushing and shoving to get people. You mentioned this Phil Esferonis, who we know down here in Miami for the Medicare fraud, but he had a son that didn't deserve to be, you know, in a game and he was getting pushed on travel teams. But more from the yeah, more from like the Jordan brand game, people just you said, you know, everybody wants to be in the game, you're getting on the travel teams, all these things that you have to deal with in terms right. of the push from the players and, and, and really the parents of the players. Parents of the players, coaches, because again, their recruiting is based on their. They they promise the kid that he can get. They can get him in the game if he signs with their school. Um, you have all of those. Now that's why I said that the the business of, of, of basketball should be discussed at a, in, in, in great detail. And you know that's kind of why I'm doing interviews like this one. So I'm really appreciative of not only you um, having me on your show, but reading the book and then having some thoughts and feelings about it. And hopefully. You know, I, I, I keep I read things and I kind of giggle, man, because of what I've gone through. Um, I've been attacked in terms of my credibility and the validity of the things that I've said, and that's okay. I don't know these people don't care what they think about me. Um, I know the truth. The 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 the, the, the man that I serve uh, in terms of my religious and my faith, he knows the truth, and so that's all I can do. And if if, if people have an issue with that, then that's their issue, not mine. Well, your book goes through in detail. It's you know we talk about the star players, the Durants, the Zions, and the Lebrons, but also you mentioned like a guy named Big Murph and Marcus Good, players that we don't even haven't heard of. But how much you help them, how they went through college, just by giving them the money, working with their coaches. These are things that you got nothing for. I mean, they didn't become superstar athletes, but you impacted their lives tremendously by just being there and making sure whether it's telling them to stay in school and not fight with their coach or giving them money when they need money to eat and those type of things. Those were all all good things that you did to help so many other players, not just the superstars like LeBron and Anthony Davis. And that's because it was never about that for me. Again, I was a player. I was never uh, a superstar player, right? And I, was not, I wasn't a household name um, from a basketball perspective. I was a good player and had a good career. Um, and there are more guys like me than there are superstars. And so these guys, and, I, and, and most of these kids don't come from the family structure that I was blessed and fortunate to have had. So what advantages... Um, can can I provide personally? I still have relationships with kids like Devin. Well, they're not, they're not kids; they're grown men. Now. With guys like Devin Downey, um, who was a star of South Carolina. With guys like Wayne Efajuku, who played at Providence, who's still playing. Uh, Murphy. I talked to Murphy last week. He's on his way to Korea, I think. To, to he's still playing. You know, so those relationships mean a ton to me because those guys know what I've done. Tack Miner in Houston played at LSU. Talked to Tack last week. So those relationships are the ones that mean the most to me because those those guys, because I don't want to call them kids because they're grown men with their own family. But those guys, I've been through the trenches with them through good and bad times and their families, and, and they know what I've done to them, which is why the relationship has withstood the test of time. And then you ended up leaving Nike, took a year off, and then they probably should have done, but then you decided to go work as Adidas as a consultant. And the one story I love in this book is the Zion Williamson story. The fact, I mean, it was when his stepdad sees you and says, I have this, my stepson, maybe you want to watch him. And no one had heard of Zion. No one had seen it was not anything. And you're like one of the first people to ever see Zion. You're like, it's almost like the movie Blue Chips when they were going and finding <laughs> Shaquille O'Neal, like in somewhere back in Louisiana. I mean, it was a crazy story that you saw him. And then just even giving his stepdad $100 uh, uh, right at that first time you met him in terms of he needed to get something to eat. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's but that's how the business works. I mean, when guys have, have, when you've built a rapport and a reputation in the business for really, really willing to help people and not having it being a self-serving kind of situation, because I wasn't, I wasn't dealing with those kids to say, hey, man, you need to give me a million dollars when you make it. That, was, that wasn't the purpose for me. The purpose for me was to, to again, to pass on the blessing of experience um, and my love of the game and my, my experience, my relationships to the people that were making that journey. I'd already made mine. My playing career was over with. And so how now can I best impact their lives in a positive way, um, whether, it's, whether it was in the NCAA rules or not? It's positive. It's helping these families. If a man is saying he can't feed his family and he's asking for money to eat, would I break a rule to do that? Absolutely. Every day of the week I would because it's the right thing to do. Now, if he's just trying to go blow it and go gamble with it, that's a different conversation. But if this is a genuine, and I know who this guy is, and I've done my homework, say, hey, man, what's going on with this family? And I've had, had my 
folks in the space who are resourceful because they know they're really struggling right now. They need some help. Okay, how do we help? And yeah. again, it wasn't for personal gain. And then you were, you know, you sent him down to a, a summer. He played in the summer league in Atlanta, and then you mentioned that his stepdad and his mom wanted to coach him in a summer league team, and sort of you got they got involved, they got their summer league team, and 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 everything is. But the story about the Clemson, I mean, the fact that his stepdad, you showed how. Clemson was real in on him, and so was South Carolina, and they were both like providing housing at the same time, but they were both paying, I think we said South Carolina was paying for Clemson's house, and uh, the, and the fact that- There was an attempt, there was an attempt. I don't know if they ever actually paid for it, but there was an attempt. But uh, I mean, it was, I mean, the question has to be asked, I mean, with all that going around, like, you know, what you mentioned in the book about Duke in terms of, I mean, I went to Duke Law School, so, um, but uh, about the fact that he ends up going to Duke, and his, his mother ends up working for Duke, and he has a how big house and mansion in Durham, which everybody knows is expensive. So the question is, you know, it's always is, is what, you know, what does Coach K know about what happened with, with Zion's recruitment, that type of thing? Yeah, I, I can't but Coach K knows or doesn't know, but it is it is not it is not out of the realm of what happens in this business um, on, on, a, on a regular basis. To say that mom's going to get a job, um, dad is going to get a job, or there's going to be a, a, a house that's seven bedrooms and there'll be no rent paid. Uh, I mean, they're going to have two cars to drive. None of that is out of, of, out of the, the sphere of reality as it relates to big time college athletes. Um, and not, this is not just a basketball conversation. It happens in football every day. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, I'm, I, I can't speak to what Coach K knows, doesn't know. That's not for me to say. But, you know, again, the, 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 the business dealings surrounding Zion aren't uncommon. I'll say that. You did say in the book, the interesting thing was when you talked to Zion early on, he said, my favorite school is Duke. You know, so everybody was surprised when he went to Duke, but you said when the first conversation you had with him is my favorite school was Duke and I like Duke and that type of thing. So Yeah, and I think that, that's why I talked about the, the, the Roy Williams visit, you know, the, the, the recruiting visit. Um, and him, I, I was actually on the phone with him that day when they were coming down, he was really kind of perturbed because he really didn't want to go because he had no no desire to go to North Carolina. <laughs> and again, but those are kind of the insights and the stories that I think make the book valuable. And I think, if, you know, when hopefully people will um, get the same, um, you know, get the same out of out of the, the read once they have a chance to, 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 to take a look. And then you mentioned in the book also about Giannis. I mean, that was uh, uh, your just experience with him was was just the recruiting. I mean, you just gave them. I mean, I learned in your book about Giannis things I didn't know. You said, you know, Adidas is pitching Giannis on something. We have to do, you know, we have to do a pitch thing. And you talk about what you had to do in terms of recruiting Giannis into into the Adidas camp. And, and these are things you knew about him. So I thought that was. I mean, I read the book to find out all the little details. But you gave them a checklist of things they had to do. I was. I just love reading that. That was cool. Yeah, it was, so, again, man, I've been in the space a long time and I've built a rapport with a lot of people. And Giannis's agent is a personal friend. And so I, I wasn't, again, I was in a consulting space. I didn't have the authority to, to get to a number that was going to secure the deal. What I could do was get as much information, and that's part of the job, getting as much intel um, as you can on a particular player, his likes and dislikes, and try to provide that to those who you're working with or for um, to give them the best chance to be successful. And that's what I try to do. Well, and then we just turn now to the investigation and the FBI. And I guess you wrote in the book about Norby Walters, and he was arrested for paying players in 1988. And then the, it was it was reversed because they said, well, there's really nothing, you know, just because you violate NCA rules, it's not a felony or a crime to violate NCA rules. And you mentioned in the book, you went through the whole detail about how this uh, wannabe agent, Christian Dawkins, who was working for Andy Miller, in terms of the FBI got involved with him in terms of trying to pay uh, coaches or bribe coaches to bring players, uh, those type of things. Yeah, I mean, these were, I never really had a, uh, a relationship. I mean, I, I didn't know these folks. I, I, Christian asked me to attend a meeting with him, um, which I reluctantly went to, and he told me if I went, I'd be paid a consulting fee. Well, when they paid me a consulting fee, they said I took a bribe. <laughs> and so I'm saying, that's not what happened. And so let me and then they said well you were bribing coaches i said no i have a i have wiretap phone calls that you guys were listening to where i specifically say no i've been in this business too long if i ask a guy to show up at a meeting he'll show up because of the relationship not because of any money i'm not doing it but that call was not allowed into the courtroom 
surprise, surprise. Because again, this this whole investigation uh, was never about the truth. This whole investigation was about a win or a loss. And the government is going to win. And so they're going to do everything they can to win, even to the point where the two FBI or the FBI agents in our case got indicted themselves and we couldn't put them on on the stand. And so <laughs> you can't win when you can't put the coaches, the ADs. I can't get my phone calls. I can't put this uh, FBI agents on the stand. As opposed to coaches, they put compliance officers on the stand. So you tell me it's not a it's not a federal crime to to uh, to overlook NCAA rules or or to break NCAA rules, but then you got compliance people on the stand testifying against. So none of it made any sense. But again, when you got when you got people who are in the jury pool who don't understand any of this, and you're you're blocking me from putting forth the truth, I can't I can't win that. I mean, the idea was that Brian Bowen was going to Louisville and money was transferred him for 100000 And then the point is that you supposedly were defrauding, uh, you were defrauding Louisville, even though, and Arizona, even though that you have directions from the coaches. I mean, they they wanted it. You were not defrauding them. You were, help, you know. That, that's, that, was the, that, that, that was my point about not being able to put coaches on the stand. You blocked me from putting coaches on the stand, but then you stand defrauding the very people that are asking for the help. And you won't allow me to put the contracts with this hundred and sixty million, a hundred and seventy million dollar contract between Adidas and Louisville was not allowed into the courtroom. So you're saying I'm defrauding the people that the company I'm working for is paying one hundred sixty million dollars for? None of it made any sense. Why would I defraud them for a hundred thousand dollars when they're getting paid one hundred and seventy million? And there's tapes of. I mean, I listened to The Scheme as an HBO show. I mean, there's tapes of Sean Miller direct talking about this, and you couldn't introduce their coaches ta- you know, telling you those were the, the, those wiretaps, which they had. It wasn't like, oh, you had to find information. You actually had that information, and the judges wouldn't even let you, the judge wouldn't let you present it to the jury. Again, it was about wins and losses, but the truth. Nothing, nothing about this case was about the truth. Everything was about wins and losses. And when you've got a judge who says stuff like, you're not going to talk about poor black kids in my courtroom, or I'm going to put a stop to this. He had a personal vendetta because he doesn't like it. He doesn't like the fact that, that these parents and these kids are getting money. He feels like a scholarship is enough. And so he's going to enforce his will and not the law. And so we paid the ultimate price for for his, his feelings, which is dangerous in the court of law. And then you have judges who protect judges. So even when it goes to the appellate situation, judges protect judges. And if he's a tenured guy, he's been around a long time, they respect him enough. Well, that's what he said. And you guys knew it, so it is what it is. And then you talked about there was a coaches retreat that they were wiretapping, and all the coaches were in a room. You had you said Hurley and Self and everyone, and they're saying, "Why can't Adidas do more for us? Nike's killing us." And that information wasn't even allowed. And I guess if you're being if you're being if your felony was that you defrauded them, they're the ones directing you to do this. I mean, it's not a defraud. Yeah, they they knew that. Nothing about this case made any sense except for they had some young prosecutors who wanted to make a name for themselves and. This was their entryway into some visibility and spotlight, and you got judges that help them win their cases, and that's that's really ultimately what what it ended up being. And the one thing your book presents, and also what Christian Dawkins in, in the in the scheme says, is that the money they were trying to say, let's pay the coaches because they wanted to get bribes and coaches, and you were like saying that's the stupidest thing. You, the coaches are nothing. We want to you just you pay the players and the parents and everyone else. The coaches right. have nothing to do, and it, it's like the FBI was entrapping in terms of pushing that. That's exactly what happened. And even when I said, I said, no, I wasn't going to be involved in it. And they still charged me, even though they knew I said, no, I'm not doing it. It was on, you're on tape saying, don't do it. I put the transcribed conversation in the book. <laughs> So you're on tape on a wiretap saying, I don't want to do it. It's the stupidest idea I've ever heard. And you still get charged for it anyway. That's not just charged for convicted of Um. And I guess the question is, is are they under this scenario that anybody who does like, you know, if you give a piece of pizza to a college athlete and it hurts his eligibility, you're suddenly committing a felony in back in the old days. Like if you somehow affected their eligibility in any way, which is like you're using the NCAA rules, not what the real rules are. Right. And that's why I said this was never about the truth. This was never about the law. This was about them winning and losing and protecting their, their business entities and the relationships of those kids, those young prosecutors that brought the case. That's all this was about. Um, and now it must, I mean, 
first of all, you were doing something everybody else was doing, and now we have the NIL rules. Now under the NIL rules that we have today, it's just wide open. Everybody's paying everybody, so it's totally changed. And it's amazing that you know you were convicted, as you said, on on a, on a rule that right now there's a zillion people that are all doing it open and on. You can go on the Miami University website, and they have how much you pay for each player to do anything. It's right; their number is right there on the website. Yeah, I mean, again, and, and what's what's even more interesting is there's no been federal, there's been no federal legislation to change the rule. So if it was actually against the law, there would have been federal legislation to allow NIL. There hasn't been. So I committed a crime, but now you can do it without federal legislation. So where was the federal crime? It was the one. But again, when you when you go against the government and they they're blocking um, evidence uh, and they want to win, they're going to win. Amazing. I mean, what are you doing now? Like, what are, what's your what's the next step? Have you been involved in basketball your entire life? What is your next step? Your you know what with the rest of your life? You're still very very young. Yeah, I don't know. That, that's still a a question that'll hopefully pan itself out in the next you know few months to to, to year or so. And I'm I'm prayerful that I've built enough relationships with 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 people um, that there'll be some opportunities for me. But I, I really don't know at this point. I mean, this book. You wrote this book uh, a couple about a year ago, and then you and then you served time, and then you came back, and now you're promoting it. Um, I, I just hope people get a chance to read this book, Black Market. It, it is a tremendous book, and I, I encourage everyone to read it. I, you must be getting great response from the from people who are reading it. I thought it was an amazing book. Yeah, I appreciate. It. Yeah, I have gotten gotten really good response from everybody who's read it, who's, who's basically come back and said, "Man, I've learned a lot," and that was the intent. The intent was to help educate people on how this thing actually works and, and how those young kids are affected by the rules that are in place and how, and I hate to say it this way, man, because I've never been one who's pointed a finger in a racial perspective, but how white folks make money off of black kids' backs. And that's what this business has been. And the minute we've started fighting or challenging it, you put me in prison. Amazing. Merle, I know you're very busy. I so appreciate it. I, I, I think we're just, we were just saying how I'd love to have you back on for your insight into college basketball I don't, and pro basketball. I don't, there's probably no one else that has the insight that you have and the takes you have on what's going on in the industry. I'd, I'd be uh, I'd be honored to come back and, and, uh, and speak with you whenever, whenever I can and you know, your schedule permit. And going forward, I mean, I guess my final question is, do you think that your story, by you talking about this, it's going to make changes? I mean, there is—is is it? Is it? I mean, we already have the NIL, so there has been changes that way. But it should be something to work with in terms of the kids and the parents and everything to understand, like what is the whole industry and how it happens. That's the hope. I mean, the hope is that that the more we discuss this and the more pressure is put on uh, our legislators um, to, to to stop. The powers that be at the collegiate level from continue to uh, exploit these kids and continue and again at the state level they're, they're they keep continue to again limit um and put caps on what kids can can earn and make and what agents can make but you don't do that with the guys who are coaching you don't do that and so why is it different for those young men and young women who are putting their lives on the line every day I mean, you know, I've had I've had two I've had one teammate pass away from a heart attack. Uh, I've had one teammate who just had a heart attack. Um, I've had teammates who had hip replacement surgery before, from forty years old. I mean, I don't think people really understand the trauma that your body goes through as a collegiate athlete and the pressures of winning and the, and, and and what you are what you go through mentally uh, as well as physically every single day. And so who, who takes care of that young man or that young woman when their four-year playing career is over with if they're not fortunate enough to play professionally? They take care of themselves after they've made these schools millions and millions of dollars. Something about that stinks. And so you want to put a cap on what a kid can make now understanding that these are going to be lifelong issues that these young men are going out to deal with from a health perspective. They're not, they're not covered from a health perspective after those four years are up. But they're still going to be dealing with those nagging injuries for the rest of their life, you know. So yeah, it's definitely there's definitely more that needs to be to discussed, and there needs to be um, 
there needs to be some some change um, from 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 the from the legal perspective. Now you mentioned how you stay in touch with there were players that you recruited that suffered injuries and uh, that we never will hear about because they had an ACL tear or whatever when they were 16 years old and suddenly everyone's throwing them product and everything and then suddenly they're nothing and then that you know but you stay in touch with them and we'll work with them to get in them in college. Sure. I mean that's that's the, that I told you that idea and the objective for me was to help and so if I have a relationship with some somebody I can lean on to try to help a young man and his family. Because the idea is for that kid to go to go to college and, and hopefully get a degree and be a productive citizen. That's that's the idea. Um, and so, if you want to turn me into a villain for doing that, I'm okay with it. I got <laughs> I got broad shoulders, man. I'm good. I'm good with it. No, no. I mean, it was. I, I just watched the trial and, and was followed it. I'm so glad I read the book and talked to you because I just cannot believe that they prosecute. I mean, I said you and, and the and the other and the assistant coaches and whatever when it when you were the making the least amount of money and not even just trying to help players out. So right, that's all. All it ever was. Well, I appreciate Mar. I know you're busy, so thank you so much for coming on Iron Sports, and uh, I appreciate you taking the time out of talking about your book again, Black Market. Um, one of the best books I've ever read on college basketball. Thank you, sir. Awesome stuff there. Merle Code here on Ira on Sports. Ira, what's the plan for this week? You're in Florida. Wait, not. I don't know what I'm going to do. I might not go to any sports, but I'm excited for next week. We have Kyle Petty, uh, who is the son of Richard Petty. Kyle himself ran 900 NASCAR races, has a great book out, and I'm so excited to have him on next Monday. We are out of time. Thanks so much to Merle Code. He's Ira. I'm Mike. Let's talk next Monday night. It's Ira on Sports.